Blog Talk Radio. I'm doing the showcase again, and with me today, with me today, is young budding author Matthew Chapman. Matt, what's up, man? Hey, how's it going? Welcome to the show, man. So, I got to look at your books. You know, you wrote The Paradox Maker and The Universe Tree, and uh, congratulations on your recent marriage, by the way. Thank you so much. Hope you enjoyed your honeymoon. How was that? Oh, it was terrific. We went to all these amazing countries that we would never have gone normally. And, you know, we just got to experience so many new, new things. Oh, that's awesome. So let's get right into it, man. You've, you've got two books out currently. They're available on Amazon. For those of you who don't know, titles are The Paradox Maker and The Universe Tree. And you got a third book coming out. Tell me a little bit about it, man. Yeah. All right. So want me to start off with the premise of the first two books? Yeah, why don't you why don't you tell us why don't you take us into this world you've created, Matt? All right. So as a bit of background, the main character of the story is Senator Greg Crawley. Uh, he's a U.S. senator from Indiana, and uh, the basic idea is he becomes while he's in Washington, strange things start happening, and he ends up running into a time traveling assassin who takes him on as his apprentice. Uh, it's, the basic, it's and, pretty, yeah, it's a pretty interesting premise for a story. So tell us a little yeah. bit about uh, tell us a little bit about the challenges of writing. Tell us tell us a little bit about your influences. What's uh, what what is it that gets you going writing these books? Um, well, that, that's a good question. The basic idea that I'm trying to, I mean, I, I have always been a huge fan of you know sort of science fiction and fantasy novels. Um, I think I did draw a lot of inspiration from, in particular, the Pendragon series, if you've heard of it. Oh, yeah, yeah. Although it's not just um, that. I also do try to put um, a metaphor into the whole whole story. The basic idea behind – the whole story is really a metaphor for, you know, the, the dangers of extremist groups in politics. Oh yeah, something that's pretty relevant today. Absolutely, very, and very, it's very, it, yeah. Because essentially, what happens in the first book, um, I won't. I go into too much detail here. I don't want to spoil it for you. Well, but tell us everything, man. One, sorry. Don't 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 tell us the whole story now. No, I absolutely won't. But the but um, without going into too much detail, um. After becoming the after becoming apprenticed to the uh, to this time traveler who goes around um, killing political uh, important historical figures to in order to create paradoxes that split the universe into multiple universes, um, he basically goes 
He takes him back to the universe that is the base of operations for this group known as the Paradosians, only, to, uh, only for uh, Senator Crawley to discover that things in this universe are very brutal and divided. Right, and, and you know uh, what I'm what I'm gleaning from from what I've looked at uh, this uh, these Paradosians appear to be a sort of guiding hand, if you will, uh, very much a uh, very, very much similar to what uh, a lot of people think of as sort of a deep state or uh, or you know puppet masters, if you will, guiding hmm. guiding the world in their own way for their own means, their own ends. Hmm. Well. That's an interesting way. That's an interesting perspective. I've never really considered them to be, um, or at least I've never considered that they're that the intent of the order they've founded is to be a guiding hand so much as people who experiment with uh, with um, without existence, people who just sort of see what the world would be like if it goes a certain way, because the, because if you will recall from the books that you don't they it is impossible to actually change the past you just sort of split it off and create a, a, a past that stands alongside the existing one right you create an alternative pathway that history might take without destroying the current yes without destroying what already exists this is almost sort of like yes. the uh, concept of matter the matter cannot be destroyed exactly and you know to and, you know, the biggest case in point of, of that is that, you know, the whole story begins with the main character being killed but for the, for the purpose of creating another universe. Right. Um, so tell me a little bit about uh, – tell, tell, tell me a little bit about this, uh, this senator. What, uh, what, what prompted you to pick uh, a senator from Indiana? Uh, of all things, um, you know, I mean, you have, you have all these places. That you, I mean, what uh, what prompted you to pick a senator specifically? Um, just just hmm. the proximity of being in the United States or. Um, I don't remember exactly what informed me, what informed me to choose a senator versus like another another type of legislator. Um, I do remember the reason I chose Indiana. Though. Um, it stemmed from a lot of criteria that I wanted. Um like I, I basically wanted to start off the story in a real U.S. town, and um, ah. I wanted it to be, I wanted it to be a town in, in the Midwest that is, that, that is sort of small and has like a busy main street, and it also had to be within proximity of an of a hospital that's capable of treating uh, neonates who are in who are in, in severe condition. Ah. So, so you and, a little oh, bit of, and and it had to and it, yeah and I and um, also complicating it, it had to have had access to that place in 1978. Ah, so I had to do so a lot of digging to, to find a town that met all of that criteria, and I found one in Indiana. But tell me a little bit about your researching process. This, this is these are good tips for people that are looking to become writers. It's there's a lot of there's a lot of work that goes into it. You don't just throw something down on a page. Absolutely. I will say that the, um, by far the, mo- the parts I had to do the most research on were the parts that take place in real areas of the world. Cause I mean, a lot of parts of my book takes place in alternative universes. So 
that that's a little easier, but it requires a different sort of challenge. You, you need to have a lot of creativity to create new things as opposed to researching existing things. Um, well, one thing I would say is that I also happen to be a um, a um, writer for an for a news site. So you know, often researching is, uh, for for these sorts of novels that have a tether to reality is a very is a surprisingly similar process. Basically, you know, you I just start with a search engine and go and start trying to narrow down, you know, what. A, like if I'm writing about a place, I try to look up what it physically looks like, what what there, what sorts of um, uh, what sorts of people and places exist there. And, you know, I try to base everything that happens off of that. I find oh, that a lot of I, I find that a lot of the story flows organically from figuring out the basics of the uh, realities of where you, of what you're starting to do. Yeah, I mean that's that's a great that's a great way of looking at it. So you mentioned that there is a different challenge when it comes to creating a world. Uh, you know, we have a lot of people who've created a lot of different worlds. Uh, you know, particularly in literature, and one that comes to mind for me, uh, you know, quite quite obviously, you know, just to keep it more uh, more in the mainstream, uh, you know, Game of Thrones, for example. You know, there, there's a heck of a challenge that comes with creating a an entire world. So, so, so tell you know, me a little bit about uh, your process. Um, that's uh, so. You know, th- that is another huge. I mean, I would say that um, creating worlds has always been my driving passion in life. Actually, because you know, I work as a video game designer uh, during the day, um, which is a whole different sort of creating worlds. Um, I mean, uh, there as with as with the challenge of documenting reality, you need to start with, you know, the basic principles of how the world is going to work. Um, what are the, what are the like big, simple, but sweeping twists that make that world different from ours? And then a lot of the details will just sort of flow out of there. Like when I went in to write a lot of the worlds that I created in this book, I did not know what like 95% of the stuff was going to be when I first started writing. Um, so I mean, I, I would just decide, okay, so there, there is this one big detail about how, about their technology, one big detail about their politics, and then everything else flows from a combination of those things. Right. So, just just to uh just to get into this a little bit more you know you mentioned you you design you know video games and and how much does that how much does that bleed over into your work i mean do you have um you know some favorite favorite games that have kind of influenced you or favorite authors even that have influenced your writing personally hmm okay so well <clears throat> um i definitely have answers to both of those so the um as for video games, at my current job, there's not a huge amount of world building because right now I mostly work on building slot machines, mm-hmm. and, those, and those are pretty simple as far as far as a video game would go. You just sort of press the lever and watch, and watch to see if you get the bonus. But I have had a more experience 
in the past was doing um, much more interactive environments and worlds. Um, one interesting thing that I, game that I still reflect back on that I had a lot of fun making was for a final was for a school project. It was called Block Scramble, and the basic idea behind that game was. You um, you have these colored blocks falling from the sky, and it's um, it's a 3D world. You're this like scientist, and um, you have to first of all avoid being crushed by the blocks. But as they fall, you also have to jump on them, and then use your tools to manipulate them. And each uh, tool can manipulate a different kind of block in a different way corresponding to its color. But um, then the um, um, but but you can only take like two out of the five tools with you in, in each uh, in each area. So those are fairly simple rules, but they um, but they lead to just very sophisticated uh, sort of patterns emerging. Right, and and I'm sure that uh, with that comes some very uh, different challenges as opposed to the uh, slot machine you mentioned, which I'm sure carries its own. It does. It definitely have. does. One of the challenges that I had to do was de- how de- was designing the camera. Basically, in this game, um, the camera sort of looks slightly overhead of you, <clears throat> and uh, the player is able to at any time flip the camera 90 degrees so that you're looking at the game from a different angle. Wow. So in that, fact, that this is game a little bit should. Oh, sorry. So that, uh, so there is a little bit more. You know, you, you kind of when you when you first pitched that in there, kind of kind of seemed like you softballed it, but it does sound like there's a little bit more complexity to it than simply you know de- designing a machine that has a lever that you can kind of pull, and then just watch to see if you yeah. get a you know a bonus spin or and what have you. Um, yeah, so I mean, a little I mean the slot machine than that. Yeah, I mean certainly. With with like the slot machines we're designing right now, the player has a fairly limited amount of control, but there is still a surprising amount of, of work that goes into designing the experience for the player. And one of the interesting things that we do as slot machine programmers is try to give the player greater, a greater sense of choice, even when there isn't, isn't choice. Right. You want to maintain this illusion. Um... <laughs> Yeah. Solve it now, a little bit more. So, yeah. oh, now, circling back, you also wanted to know, you know, some good authors that were real that were, had a big impact on me. Yeah. One, go, go one really important. Sorry. Go ahead and tell us a little bit more about your literary influences. Uh, well, one book series that is probably my all-time favorite is the Edge Chronicles. Have you ever heard of it? I don't think I have. Tell me a little bit about it. Created by uh, by a British duo, Paul Stewart and Chris Riddell. Stewart does the writing, Riddell does the line drawings. And the line drawings really sell this story because like every two pages or so, there's these massively detailed and often very grotesque drawings of the characters and places that exist in this universe. And it, here again is an example of a universe that has uh, that started out from very simple rules and developed something very complex as a result. Um, basically, the edge is a universe where like the entire world is just a cliff, 
And so the, the whole series started because uh, Stuart and Riddell were reflecting on how they, as children, had always been curious about what existed off of the edge of like maps of in the beginning of fantasy books. And so the, it occurred to them, what if there was a world that was the edge of the map? And that, that is certainly a very interesting way of viewing the world uh, because you've created, a, you've created a microcosm, if you will, that isolates the characters from the rest of the world or the rest of the universe or what have you. So that's a very interesting uh, concept. Uh, it does make me think a little bit about this parallel dimension that exists for these Paradocians that you've created. Mm. Yes, um... A little bit of that overlap so, there. Yeah. Uh, there's um, the, the really, I think the thing that I really took away from those books was that it was just the idea of how, um, how you really just have to start from a very simple rule and you can end up with a world that is just incredibly sophisticated and has a sense. Well, th- this series just kept growing and growing and, and, to the point where there's like a hundreds of years timeline of events that take place in this world. Is that something that you're going to want to try and duplicate in your series? Um, you know, several hundred years or decades or, or centuries? I will not lie. I've given it some thought. I mean, for the time being, I'm mostly just considering this uh, story in terms of a trilogy. So the Paradox Maker, the Universe Cree, and then the third book, which is called The Mirror Experiment, which I'm working on now. But I have actually given thought to what if I did something like the, the arc of the Edge Chronicles and created like multiple trilogies covering different characters at different points in, in time of, the, of this universe. Oh, that's, that, that, that'd, be, uh, that'd be an interesting project for you to take on. It would because because the way it worked in the Edge Chronicles is the first three books were about um, were about um, a, a young fourthling. That's what they call humans in this world. Uh, his name was Twig. He was abandoned in the deep woods, raised by wood trolls, and grew up to become the greatest sky pirate captain ever. So um, then the next uh, then there was another trilogy about um, his father, the sky pirate Quint Virginix. And then there was a third trilogy that was about his grandson, who and who was, grew up in a very different future, a future world of, the, uh, of this universe, and be moved on to become a free late lancer. And it seems like there's a lot of depth to these characters. So, so tell me, what are the challenges of creating a character that your your reader can? Uh, relate to and, and care about because this is something that is quite a challenge for writers is to create a character uh, that maybe not necessarily you like, maybe you don't necessarily hate them, but you have to formulate some sort of feeling for the character. You have to invest some sort of emotion in them. So talk about absolutely that challenge. Um, I, will, I will not lie. That is absolutely the part I struggle with most as a writer, creating, um, creating characters that are compelling. And you know, one of the hard thing, one of the things that is that I have found to be um, 
difficult is trying to make the main character at least a little bit different from yourself. Because you, you, I find that the impulse in writing is to put yourself in your, in your main character. Right. Well, there's this, uh, what, you know, you write what you know, right? And who do you know? Right. You know yourself. That's true. I mean, and it's not necessarily a bad thing to do that. But there are there are pitfalls to doing so. Yeah, um, I feel like uh, we're getting at something here. One one thing that you don't want to do ever when you're writing, and I think, Matt, you might be able to uh, agree on this, uh, is limit yourself. Uh, and oftentimes when you, when you start to do this introspection, uh, as particularly when you're writing, you're trying to formulate characters, uh, and you're trying not to bleed over into your character, uh, there, is, there is the imminent threat of limiting yourself, creating sort of a, a stopgap character that becomes almost a stop character in that they are just sort of so much like you or they take on these certain qualities and you find those qualities maybe bleed over into other characters, which is something you want to avoid. But you also don't want to write yourself into a corner. Uh, with a right. character. I mean, I, one thing that I, I mean, whenever these, the, I mean, whenever I try to, to create a new character, I just, I have to constantly be asking myself, you know, what is it about this character that is different from the others? How do they take the story in a different direction than it would have gone? So tell me, tell me a little bit, Matt, about. Tell me a little bit more about your your influences. You mentioned the uh, the Edge series. Uh, mm-hmm. Was that your only was that your only major influence, or, or do you have others? Um. Well, as I say, one other huge influence I had for world building was the Pendragon series. Right. Right. Because the, oh, did you? The, I mean, one, I mean, I think one. Sorry. Did you say Pen Pendragon or Ped? Pet Dragon. Uh, the first one, Pendragon. Pendragon. Oh, okay. I thought you said Pet Dragon the first time. I'm sorry. Yes, I am familiar with that series and circling back to that. That is a series, uh, for those of you who don't know, uh, it is a fantasy series about a young man who discovers he is a member of this organization called the Travelers, whose job is to travel between parallel universes, essentially uh, trying to stop the one traveler who decided that it would be time to unbalance the universe. Yeah. The basic, yeah, there, there's, and I do sort of build on that theme in my books where it's not, uh, there's definitely some pretty big differences in that, um, in, in that these folks are sort of um, trying to maintain a, a balance in the universe. In mine, they're sort of creating new universes to experiment with what would happen in certain what would happen if. Right. But right. there's a similarity uh, in that there's a faction in in the Parosian Council that does not believe in the creation of paradoxes at all and wants to essentially return to a single universe at terrible cost, which which I won't go into too much detail here now. If you want to. Right. Uh, I can I can go ahead and take us in another direction then. Um, so, Matt, uh, you got a real passion for this, uh, and it's something that you have to have. Tell me a little bit about what it takes to get 
that fire for writing. You know, a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of people uh, who found out that I was going to have you on my show, uh, and they said, wow, a, a guy that writes books, you know, for a living, uh, that's got to be a real challenge. You know, please ask him, you know, how does he stay so motivated? How do you stay uh, with your with your writing, and, and does it ever get stale? Talk, talk a little bit to that. T- tell me a little bit about that. Well, one of the important things I one of the things I found is really important is that um, if you if you start losing interest in your writing, it's just it's just a cycle. Uh, you you back away from from your writing too long, you just start questioning what the point of it is. And you know the point is that you want to get your message out. You want to get your ideas on paper. And so I found that. Um, I make it a point to write at least a little bit every day, so that these me- so that everything stays fresh in my mind. Even when I don't want to, often when I when I actually start typing, I find I do want to, but I didn't. I just didn't realize it. Right. So that's and and you know there there's got to uh, be times when you when you come to. When you come to write and say, "Oh, am I, am I really going to do this today? Is that is that really what? <laughs> do you ever get tired of sitting in front of your of your computer? Have to have to stand up every once in a while and you know take a break from that? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, little, the funny thing is, maintain- that, the funny thing is that I find a greater need to get up and start moving when I'm excited about what I'm writing. Because I just need to pace to get to get the thoughts, you know, sort of ordered in my head. I, I have a bit of a different writing style personally, uh, though I write poetry, as you know. But mm-hmm. uh, you know, I, I also write articles and whatnot. But uh, me, I'm I'm kind of a I'm kind of a swoop and peck kind of guy. I kind of get an idea, I write it all right then, and then that's it. I move on. To the next idea, uh, you 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 do a lot more. You're more of a thinking kind of guy. You're more of a uh, you, you've got more of a process uh, than I do. My 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 process is more of an organic sort of in the moment uh, experience. I feel something. I come up with an idea. I jot that thing down, and I go from there. Tell me a little well, bit I mean, more I don't, about do what you do. I don't want to oversell the degree to which I engineer. Uh, my my writing and, and plan it out. There are definitely moments I have exactly like you where I have a, a flash of inspiration and just have to write everything down. And, um, you know, if I'm not quite in an area where I can write, then I'll just use my phone. I'll, I'll write down the basics of what I had there and come back to it later. I mean, phones are just, are just a lifesaver these days. Oh, I I totally understand. I can't tell you how many how many drafts of poems that I've I've written on my phone, thinking oh, or or ideas for ones that I've had that I'm thinking oh, this is this is going to come into play later. I just thought oh, this this is a great title or oh, this is a great concept. Uh, so I, I can't you know I I can definitely relate to you on the on the fact that the phone has just become a tremendous resource for my writing. I, mean, I never thought that would happen. Often the thing that I mo- that I most need to need to actually explicitly put on my phone is character dialogue, because I tend to get like flashes of exactly what I want a character to say. 
Right. This is something I also wanted to talk to you about. So tell me a little bit about uh, the challenges of coming up with dialogue, because this oftentimes is something that a lot of people uh, struggle with. Now, how do you how do you get how do you get your characters to to use their voices? Tell me how you make the puppets work, Matt. Well, I, I this is going to sound a little silly, maybe, but I find the most effective method to making dialogue really work is by reading it out loud to myself. Just sort of like talk in my head in, in try to talk in the voice of the character, and then I and I often find when I do that. I come up with exactly what they need to say. Oh, that's 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 definitely uh, that 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 to me definitely sounds like a good idea. Do you have a, do you ever have trouble with uh, remembering you know exactly what they're going to say, or do you or do you kind of just once you once you get this line, you you just know that this is what it what it is like. This is what we're going with. It depends. Um, as I say, usually when I come up with something that I absolutely want, definitely want them to say, I'll just jot it down for later. If I'm if I'm at all worried, I won't remember it. So tell me a little bit more about the challenges of creating a. I, I want to circle back to this because this is this is one thing that I, I think our our listeners are going to find particularly interesting. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about the complexities of not only creating your main character, but creating a supporting cast uh, that is going to complement your character, that it's going to challenge your character. Talk, talk a little bit to that. Tell me a little bit about that, hmm. about that challenge or the ease at which you have attained it. That's a good question. I mean, I have to think, I mean, you know, I have, I would have to say that the biggest but the best way to figure out how characters complement each other is to think of them in terms of what each character learns from each other. Something to think about, people. Hope you guys are jotting this stuff down. This is this is this is this is mm-hmm. big stuff here. Mm-hmm. Just so, you know, if two characters are going to approach a problem differently, what do they each learn from each other when they do? Is that is is a, that's a big way that I sort of work out over time the, the character that I'm creating. Because I often don't know the in, like the second I create a character what that character is going to be like. Sometimes I have a good idea of where a character is going to lead and sometimes the character ends up surprising me. I mean, I can, I can so give you, an example of... Yeah, sorry? go for it. Give us, yeah, go ahead. Give us so I'll give an example of that. There is this one character in the first book who um, she, she's like an impoverished peasant in another, in another universe who takes in the main character and his, you know, and his mentor and help and helps them get back on their feet. And that character ended up being way more interesting than I thought she would be. And ultimately I actually decided to bring her back in the third book. Right, and you know that to me uh, speaks to what we strive for, right? Uh, what, what what a writer strives for is to create a memorable character, right? Not just not just a, a memorable main character, but uh, a supporting cast where there are certain characters within the book that people can can feel them. They they they, they jive with that. They're they're they are feeling uh, that character. Some, they are interested in what that character yeah. story is. 
someone that you'll actually feel emotions for if something happens to them. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, this is something and, that I've talked about personally in reviews that I've done of films. Uh, you know, one, one thing I ding a film for very hard uh, if, they, if I feel like they don't do it is if you don't make me care about the character. Uh, you know, exactly. In some films, you know, obviously you know that there's going to be the prototypical character who may be fodder for the villain or fodder for the hero, but you still want to care. You still want to care exactly. about for them. And they're they're I I and I feel the same way for like TV shows. When I see a new TV show, I can tell you that the quickest, absolute quickest way to turn me off of a TV show that I'm just that I'm just trying to get into is if is if I'm just sitting there and I think I'm not rooting for any of these people. I, I I'm not I don't find any of them um, I, I don't find any of them relatable in any way. And I don't necessarily mean that they have to be good people. Like for example, the oh. The characters in Seinfeld are all terrible people, but they're all relatable on some level. Alright. Oh, I was gonna I was gonna circle back to uh Game of Thrones. Matt, who do you want to win? You're going to you're gonna be shocked by this, but I've just never been able to get into that. Really? Wow. Wow. I I, I, I mean I would have definitely pegged you I for, guess for one of those times. I would too. Like everyone else in my family likes it. I just had so much uh, hard time getting into it. Um, maybe I just need to see. Maybe I need to see the show first or something. I, I actually tried the books first. Really? See, I I devoured books just so quickly. That's just that's just who I am. That's just what I do when I when I get to books that I'm interested in. I just tear right through them. Um, well, you know what? I'm not going to try to justify my lack of interest in this series. I know it's on me. <laughs> It's um, it's a masterpiece. Uh, you know, well, you know, uh, you know. Getting aside, I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, I, I, I think you'd be hard pressed to find somebody uh, that can do what George R. R. Martin has done. Uh, is created no, not only really, a book he's brilliant, series, definitely. Uh, yeah, who's not only created a book series uh, that basically almost any any writer now would just scramble to try to even come close to duplicating. Uh, in terms of his character development, I, I know he gets dinged a lot for you know how long his books are or how how many characters he kills off. But uh, you know, if you really read his books, sing very well, and he makes uh, he's got, he's he's a master at the transition, uh, which is something uh, that is really underrated uh, for a lot of writers. Uh, some people do it. So well that you just don't. You want you want events to happen in your in your story, but you want to feel like it's a seamless transition. And he he has accomplished that. Uh, so tell me a little well, bit about a, a... your plot and how you uh, have created a plot uh, that really ropes in the reader. Because uh, for writers. Uh, when you when you sit down and you write a story, you you kind of have to decide, right? Uh, this is where the way the story is going to go. Uh, this is this this is what my character's challenge is going to be, uh, and he's either going to rise to the occasion or not rise to the occasion. And here's the reasons why X, Y, and Z. Uh, and here's going to be our end result. Uh, talk about the challenges of creating a plot uh, and sort of sticking to it, to it, or or maybe even deviating away from it as you write. I think the biggest challenge. 
you know, has to be. I mean, the, I mean, it's not at all difficult to design a, a broad story arc. The hard part is figuring out in the littler story arcs that happen inside it, what, but when you want to have plot twists and which parts of the plot are twists. Like which ones do you, which facts do you want to keep hidden from your reader until the last minute and why? Right. I mean, I think, I think you're touching on it. And I think what I want to flesh out is, you know, what is your, I mean, what is your thought on, on, on how to, uh, what, what do you think makes a good plot in your opinion? I mean, what makes a good plot? I think a really good plot is in it, – it lies in, as, a, as I say, having a series of questions and answers that are that – are, that, that where each answer just raises a different question, and the, and the reader is just going to want to know them all. Like you don't want there to be something that – like you, you don't want – the the plot to hinge on something that ultimately the person doesn't care about. Right, right. So talk a little bit about this. You know, one thing that comes up oftentimes when we think about plot is what are the stakes? You know, what what is the character risking if they fail? I mean, in your mind, do the stakes have to be huge? Do they have to be small? Uh, what what is it that makes a plot? Uh, what what is it that makes the stakes? worth it for you in a plot? Well, Where would you gauge? Well, I mean, I will say that in my story, the stakes are really, really enormous, but I don't think they have to be. As long as, you, as, long as the character... It, it matters more what the character perceives, how the character perceives the stakes than you know, how big they are in the grand scheme of things. You need to be right. able to... Under, you need to be able to, you know, think, to understand what the character wants, what the character, how the character, you know, what that character stands to lose, and then, um, not just, you know, and and that's how real life works too, because you know, there are things, there are, I think we'd all agree there are things that matter more than other things, but, but you know, to different people, different things matter, mean. Um, in, in varying degrees. Right. Uh, I think you, you, you kind of touched on it here. There is certain things that when we, when we look at a story, we have to gauge whether or not, uh, not necessarily if the stakes are, you know, super high, but what the stakes mean to the character. Uh, you know, if the, you know, if there are certain, we've seen stories before, uh, and you could even argue, you know, I want to circle back even to your reference of the Pendragon series. Uh, at the very beginning, you know, we're told that there's these massive stakes. But at the beginning, our character is not really invested. Exactly. Uh, he he wants to leave because he doesn't understand how it affects him. Yeah, he, he is not interested in these, in these stakes. He's told, oh, well, the entire universe is uh, – all these alternate realities, everything – that ever is, that ever was, will be, could be, it all hinges on your shoulders. Are you ready to take on the responsibility? Uh, no, I'm a teenage boy and I don't care. All I care Why about the hell do you pick me? Is is the is the thing that he keeps that he keeps asking over and over. Right. Uh, so, tell me a little bit about 
the challenges you face in humanizing your character. Cause I think this is a good segue to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, I definitely, one, one thing that was hard to write in the, in the first book was um, the moment where uh, Greg Crawley realizes what he needs to do and why. And that happens maybe like a third of the way into the book. Um, it happens after he sees his mother in the past. Essentially, in the, I mean, um, there may be a bit of spoilers here, but it's still relatively early in the book, so I feel okay t- talking about this part. Um, um, around a third of the way into the book, he sees his mother in 1978 in the parallel universe where he had been killed as a baby. Ah. And obviously she's not doing well. Um, so he, um, so at that point he had been given an ultimatum about you know whether or not to join the Paradosian Council, and he had, and and he just couldn't figure he couldn't answer because he didn't really understand in himself what he, what question he needed answered. And then when he saw his then when he saw his mother he figured out what he needed to know. He needed to know whether um, his involvement would create a better world for people like her. And once he had the answer to that question, he he didn't look back. You know, and that's that's something that I think we can all kind of think about is, you know, what is our what is our contribution going to be to the world around us, and what what impact will we have based on our actions? Because uh, for your character, I mean, great there's great there's great consequences. If he depended on his choices, there are tremendous consequences. But mm-hmm. I think we can both, I think we can both agree that even an ordinary person's choices can have tremendous consequences, tremendous impact on the world around them. Uh, and so, one thing that I what, that I found particularly interesting about your book is that you create your books is that you've created a character in a world on which his. This this ordinary idea of my choices matter becomes much more grand. Not only do my choices matter, uh, not only are they going to have an impact on on the world around me and and the people that I love and the people that I know, but they're going to have lasting and very severe consequences. Uh, yeah, but I think we can also, you know, I think we can also circle that back to, you know, a real life challenge that we all face is the things that we do, the things we say, the things we uh, the, the actions we we perform, they have consequences, right? Uh, they have an impact. Absolutely. You know, I would say that, um, you know, in my, I would say that in my personal life, over the past couple of years, uh, Jessica and I have made some very big decisions that, cha- that, you know, sent our lives, the lives of people we know in very, very substantial directions. And, you know, looking back, I think we made all the right choices, but they weren't always easy. Well, I think I think that's uh, that's the challenge, right? Of, of of choices, particularly in real life, right? Uh, never mind the the world of fiction, but uh, that's the that's the uh, real real kick about about uh, choices, right? Uh, they're going to have yeah. uh, they're going to have they're going to have some kind of consequence. They're going to have some kind of result, some kind of impact. One of the, uh, but some choices have to be made, right? One of the choose. things no that choice. I think. Yep. I know. One of the ways I like to I like to say that I know that, you know, Jessica and I were meant for each other is 
um, you know, in the last three years, we proved that we will both follow each other to the end of the world. I mean, and you guys, you guys, you know, to circle back to that, you know, I'm glad you brought that up uh, because I wanted to bring up the fact that you guys spent a great deal of time apart before you guys got married, right? Um, I I wouldn't say a great deal of time apart. Um, I mean, we've been together most of the, most of the time we were, we were apart for like maybe four, five, six months after I left college. But I mean, you guys were, I mean, you guys weren't just apart. There was significant distance between you guys. Right. Yeah. There were, yeah. Uh, During that time she was in Albany, I was in LA. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you guys were literally on opposite ends of the of, of the country from one another, uh, and you guys, you guys managed to, you know, survive that and and flourish. Really, not even just survive it, but I mean, absolutely. flourish. Uh, and so, absolutely. You know, but I will say that was a trying time, and there were and there was, you know, we had to face the question of were we were we ready for this? And I think we came and we came out of it knowing we were, and I think that really made us realize we could go the distance. Yeah, you know, I I I want to talk about a little bit, you know, more about you and and your uh, your your personal experience. Has has any of your personal life experience impacted your writing? How has that hmm. played over at all, or has it, or has it at all? That's a good question. I mean, obviously. Excuse me, I'm getting. I keep getting these incoming calls. Nope. No um, problem. Uh, so, so um, yeah, I mean, I, I would say that I've had, for the most part, I've had a, a privileged upbringing, but it hasn't always been easy, because you know I don't get along very well in many social interactions. I struggle to understand people sometimes. Right. Well, and I, yeah. I can relate to um, that. I've personally been a bit of a social outsider for much of my much of my upbringing myself, so I I can understand where you're coming from. Okay. So so tell um, me, um, how how has that influenced uh, the writing of your characters at all? I mean, did you did you see yourself? Uh, in any of your characters, if you had to pick any of your characters in your book, do you see yourself in, in any of them, or do you see qualities of yourself in your characters? I do. Um, I mean, I would say that, I mean, like I said, you know, to some degree I couldn't help putting some of myself into my, the main character, but I think there are some significant differences. I think that the biggest difference is that uh, uh, compared to me, Greg Crawley needed less encouragement to take the leap. You know, when, when, when faced to the, with a decision where he knows one is right, but it's, but it's also hard, how much encouragement does he need? I, think he need? I don't think he needed quite as much as I do. So if you put yourself in the same situation as him, do you make that same jump, Matt? Hmm. That's a good question. I mean, it depends on the point you start at. Um, 
if we'd already reached the um, the point where we had gone back in time, I'm not, I'm honestly not sure. Um, it, at the very least, would have taken me a lot longer. Um, if we were talking about the scene where he first makes the decision to um, to, to go with uh, to go with the the time traveler, that's harder. I don't know if I would have done that at all. So you're telling me that if a strange individual showed up and said, Matt, I'm a time traveler, you're not down, Matt? (laughs) Well, technically he didn't say what he was doing, that he he was a time traveler until after they had already done it. But but I think I would have been – I think I would have been less willing to hear about. Nevertheless, I feel like – I feel like I put a lot of my other impulses into the character, like the the impulses of, of how I want to affect the world around me. Now tell me a little bit about that, uh, because our main character, uh, you know, he seems to want to do good. You know, he, he seems to want to do the right thing. He knows that it's going to be a challenge. He knows it's going to be hard. Uh, and, and, and at times he's, he doesn't seem to know if what he's doing is the right thing. He's still grappling with that challenge. So tell me a little bit about that. Uh, that's, um, I mean, I would say that there, there's definitely moments like that, but I, where, I mean, I, I pretty much always feel what is right for the people I care about. But sometimes I don't know whether that, what that, um, what that involves. Sometimes I wonder whether what you know. I, I have a, just the tendency to question pretty much everything. Well, you know, and that's uh, that's. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, yeah. If anything, that's encouraged, right? I mean, you want to uh, be able to ask questions uh, about uh, about the world around you. You want to not be afraid. To uh, step forward and ask, ask the big questions. Yes, uh, ask the first for, for, uh, for what you desire. So mm-hmm. tell me, Matt, if if you could make an impact on your world, on this world that that we both share together, what what impact, what would you most like to change in our world? What would you most like to do? If you could make one change in our world, what would it be? I don't really know. I don't know. I guess I guess the one change I would make in the world is I wish that people would be more willing to ask what they don't to ask what they don't know. So you wish the world would be more of an inquisitive place. Yes, and I wish the world had more courage uh, was full of, had people who were who had more courage to, you know, admit they don't know things. I think some of the biggest problems we have in our world come from when people don't, uh, when people pretend they know what they don't know. That's 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 really, really good, uh, good point. I mean, we've we've seen uh, countless examples of that through history, right? Of people who claim to know all the answers, but when push comes to shove, where are they, right? I mean, they they can't right. leave us hanging. Um, you know, so I mean, what? I mean, moving moving off this question, I guess you know because your character, he's you know he's got this 
he's got these challenges he's got to face. You know, he's got to make the right choice. It all hinges on his choices uh, and, and what he does with, with this newfound, uh, newfound power that he's achieved. So if you could change time, that mm-hmm. what would you change? Hmm. So you mean like in the same can way have that a direct changed. impact on his universe, right? Mm-hmm. So I mean, if you could change time, if you could go back, what would you change? Hmm. I don't know. Maybe. You just get, that is I. You know what? I'm gonna to have to follow my own advice and say I don't know the answer to that. That's something I would need to co- to search my soul pretty hard for. I mean, okay, well, maybe maybe let's narrow it down. If you could change one event in history, what would it be? One event in history. You can you can change any event. You can change the outcome hmm. of any event. You only get to do one. What, what would it be? You know, maybe I, um, if I wanted to save like a maximal number of people, I might want, I might change the birth of Genghis Khan so that he was never born. That's, I mean, uh, that's, that's, that's something. That's, that's something. I mean, you'd, uh, you'd avert, you know, the black plague. And I probably wouldn't avert that, but. Here's an well, interesting fact. Like no. everyone talks about how many people are descended from Genghis Khan, but he still hasn't replaced anywhere close to the number of people he killed. Well, that's true. Like there well, are I mean, two million of his descendants yeah. living today, and he killed like um, up upwards of like a, of forty million people. Yeah, he had uh, he had quite the resume. Mention all the fleas from his horses and uh, right the diseases they left behind. Yep, and plenty of you know, and plenty of the people who inherited the pieces of his empire were pretty brutal too. Some of them like built towers of skulls from their enemies. Now, man, you know there's nothing wrong with a tower of someone's skulls. (laughs) Yeah, I mean he wasn't the only. And to be fair, he wasn't the only he, his wasn't the only culture that came up with that idea. You know, they just <laughs> unearthed like a giant skull rack in uh, uh, Central America. Right, right. You know, so Matt, tell me a little bit. Uh, let, let, let's 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 get a little. Let's dive a little bit more down this rabbit hole. So, if you could, uh, if you could go back in time. Your character gets to go back to all these different time periods, and he runs into some some colorful characters along the way, some people we mm-hmm. recognize. If you were put in your character's shoes and you had to kill somebody from back in time, who would you take out? Wow, I'm I'm shooting from the hip here, Matt. I want to know. <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I mean, the easy answer would be Hitler, obviously, although it's not as easy as you would think because there were a lot of signs of 
violence and anger that were coming that, that were coming around in the era where he existed. So well, it may so there may have been someone else. Yeah, anti-Semitism was nothing new. I mean, there had been prog- pogroms for, for for decades in in Europe. Exactly, and there Germany, were even like other German. And there were even other German uh, radic- radicals at the time who were saying exactly what he was saying. Oh yeah, well of course. Uh, again, you know, one thing uh, I want to make pretty clear, uh, specifically because of my background uh, in history, is that uh, you know anti-Semitism uh, existed. Uh, in Europe for, you know, well and well back into the Middle Ages. I mean, I know, I know they they used, they used to like, I mean, they, I mean, like there were even cases where, um, village, where villages, where Jewish villages were attacked because they thought that they were responsible for the plague. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, well, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And there were, and there, there and, you were know, also, the crusaders would often go through Jewish villages on their way, on their way to the Middle East. Well, let's just be let's just be candid. The Crusaders didn't really need a uh, reason to kill anybody. They were kind of just looking for somebody to kill, pretty much all True the time. Uh, you know, that's pretty much knights in general. Uh, you know, especially lower lower tier knights, they were kind of all just out there looking for somebody to kill after there was nobody left for them to kill. Uh, what, pretty much. That's why they had so many rules later on for knights. You know, peace of God and. And all of that, you can't kill people on Sundays, and you can't kill people on Saturdays now. Tuesdays, you know, only Tuesday nights when God's not watching <laughs> or whatever, you know. So, the, you know, but again, uh, you know, that aside, uh, kidding aside, yeah, I mean, there's there's some definite history there. So, I mean, you mentioned that, you know, Hitler would be the, you know, the, the obvious choice. But if you weren't going to go with the obvious hmm. choice, who would it be? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, because, you know, some, there are some, I mean, I've often come up with some people who I feel like the world would be better off if they had never been born. Like, um, because, you know, so not, not, not always even just people who, um, who like explicitly committed murder and stuff, but people who, you know, accidentally invented stuff that proved out to be a disaster too. Oh well, yeah, well, like, that's an interesting, that's an interesting, uh, mm-hmm. interesting way of looking at it. Uh, I've sometimes, so who, I've sometimes thought that I might want to go back. Um, I've sometimes considered like that I might want to go back and get rid of the person who invented leaded gasoline. That's that's not really what I that you know I got to be honest with you, Matt. That's not really what I expected you to say. You know, I was kind of thinking, you know, maybe you'd go after somebody like, you know, Einstein or somebody from the Manhattan Project or, you know, somebody like that. Mm-hmm. Well, that's well you know, um, certainly. I mean, I would say that um, if if the time if the day comes that there actually ends up being like a full scale nuclear war, then they would certainly become the top contenders. Yeah, um, let's pray we don't ever see that day. I would say, I would say though that um, there was definitely. Um, I mean, Einstein's theory didn't just develop the, uh, didn't lead to the to the bomb. They also led to uh, GPS, GPS technology, which is pretty essential nowadays. 
Oh yeah, I mean, there's a lot of. Uh, then again, of course, uh, then again, of course, gasoline had its uses too, and there was a reason why they needed lead for them too. Like, it um, it increased. It was a cheap way to increase their um, their octane rating. Uh, so let's see here. Ah, so Matt, in returning back to your your books, uh, you mentioned you wanted this, this to be a trilogy. Do you have any other uh, things you any other projects you've got in the works right now, as far as your writing goes? I mean, you've almost completed well, your it's trilogy. Well, funny thing. Um, I had actually started writing a story like a, uh, several years back called uh, the Partition. Although I eventually uh-huh. decided that it, that the world, though interesting, I didn't think I could do enough with it. So I'm actually going to end up making that one of the universes in the third book. Oh. little recycling. It's always good when you've got something lying around that can get, get put to use somehow. Definitely, because I do like a lot of the ideas I had in that story. And I do want to use them, and this is, and I figured out a pretty uh, organic way that I can use them in this in, in this series. All right, Matt, we're moving into the big questions now. Big questions. Mm-hmm. Matt, tell us a little bit about dealing with criticism. Ah, how do you well, how do you prepare yourself? The basic. Um. Let's just say that I spent years and years showcasing level design projects on internet message boards. So I've developed a a fairly thick skin about criticism and learned how to use it to my uh, to my benefit. So what would you say to to young writers uh, who are kind of uh, afraid to put their writing out there? Maybe maybe they haven't had that experience. Uh, you know, what, what would you say to prepare them or or encourage them about about criticism? If you had any, if you had any pearls of wisdom, don't at there. all be scared of it. Do not at all be scared of it. Just think of it that, like, um, think, I mean, first of first of all, recognize that if one person feels some way, you cannot assume that they're the only person who feel that way. But also assume, but also don't think of the of it as an attack on you personally. Think of it as an attempt to help. You. That person probably wanted your right, wanted to get a great experience, and is probably telling you what would be necessary to get one. You, you know, the, and those are and really good points. So, oh, continue, continue. You sound like you had something going there. Uh, no, no, I mean, I pretty much just said it all. Um, oh, okay. But you know, it's but you, you know just. Use and use like criticism is always a learning opportunity. There's always something you can get from it. Oh, don't be don't Matt. be afraid of it. And 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 the less you're afraid of it, the less it hurts you too. It's it, 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 so criticism Matt, shouldn't you, hurt you. Right, right. Uh, Matt, so what would you say? Uh, what would you say to people who get frustrated about their writing? You know, because I I know that writing can be uh, can can be very rewarding. Uh, but we all know uh, that there are challenges. Uh, so what would you say to the aspiring writer who, who isn't sure yet if they're ready to commit uh, to, to, to their writing, who isn't sure? I would say that, you, that if, 
anything is frustrating you about your writing, just isolate what it is about it that, so that, that you wish is better. Figure out, you know, what specifically is missing that makes you, that makes you unsure. Figure out what sort of commitment it would take to, to fix it. And often there's a, there's a, there's a, you know, a tried and true way to do it. All right, we're going to move into another big question, Matt. Tell us a little bit about the publishing process, my friend. What do young writers have to expect? I will have to tell you that this is not an area that I'm majorly versed in since I'm self-published. Tell us a little bit about the challenges of self-publishing, Matt. Well, on the well, I mean, on the one hand, it's there's obviously the benefit to it that you know you don't need to get approval from someone else to publish. But you know, one interesting thing, but one important thing is that, uh, but but you also lose in that two things uh, potentially. You stand to lose one other. Um, possible method of getting criticism that will help you improve. And you also tend to lose the security of having a wider audience. Because, you know, pretty much, I mean, my books are out there, but, you know, not a lot of people know about them. That, that is a trade-off that I knowingly made because, you know, I, um, I had a lot of other things that I'm working on at the moment, but, um, you know, it's really up to the individual writer which route they want to go down. They're 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 very different experiences. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about. Uh, tell me a little Sorry? bit about. Or tell me a little bit about your. Uh, what what inspired you to self-publish? What 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 uh, what is it that uh, made you want to go that route instead of publishing with uh, a publishing company or a publishing firm somewhere? Well, I did actually put out some feelers to publishing companies, um, but ultimately the reason why I chose to go with with self publishing is because, you know, it come coming from my game design background, and I come from an industry where pretty much everyone just posts their content directly, and it just felt like the most natural solution for me. And so, tell me a little bit about what it's like to start shopping your work uh, to publishing companies for our. For our listeners out there who might be be considering it, what would you say to them uh, in terms of what is what what is shop your work around and and the challenges that come with that? I would say that no two publishers are going to be exactly the, are going to be exactly alike in the process for getting for getting your work to them, but there are often going to be some some common things to look out for. They're off, they're obviously going to want to see a big sample of your writing. Sometimes they'll ask to see your whole book, but that's rare. Usually they'll want to see like the first chapter or an example of a chapter that you particularly like. And you know, you, while you're you know as you're approaching the end of the book, you should start consciously thinking about which parts of the book will sell it well. Right. So tell us. Tell us, if you will, what it takes. Uh, what what sort of things do they expect if they're going to publish, and they go to one of these publishing firms? How do how do they how do they uh, 
how do they get in touch with these people? What's the best way of going about it? What channels should they explore maybe before going to publishing companies or, or what, how, what, uh, what's the best way for them to take that avenue? Well, usually the publishers will have their own, you know, preferences for how they want to receive content directly on like websites, for example. Um, but one thing is you should definitely, if you go this route, you should definitely expect to get rejection. J.K. Rowling got rejection. It doesn't, it's not a reflection on your work. So, I mean, with publishers, it's not even necessarily criticism. They just might be looking for a different genre or a different style. And tell us uh, what it's like uh, to, to sort of shop your work out there and, and not, and, you know, get that rejection, you know, uh, tell us how you, how you kind of bounce back from that. I mean, you sort of mentioned the best way to deal with criticism, but I mean, outright rejection, I mean, what, I mean, one of the biggest, you know, fears for a lot of people is rejection, right? Mm-hmm. That they're not going to be accepted, uh, that people, you know, think less of them. Well, for me, I, I can't speak for everyone else or, and I obviously can't tell anyone else how they should feel about anything happening to them. But for me, you know, getting a rejection from a publisher is really not that much different from getting a rejection, a a rejection from a company you're applying for a job at. I mean, it's obviously not ideal, but you know, it's going to happen. Like you pretty much need to put feelers out everywhere. It's exactly like when you're looking for a job. Right. I mean, that's and that's a good way of putting it. You know, you have to. One, one thing I really like that you said, Matt, is that you have to remember that it's not personal; it's business. Uh, that it, that yep. you take it all. Uh, you know, what would you say to people that are are very protective of their writing? You know, that that's one of the reasons why I think we see a lot of people who who maybe have great writing, but they're, you know, they're, they're you know, they haven't developed that 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 thick skin there. They're, they're afraid that, you know, their work's not enough or that they're not ready. Uh, what would you say to people who are in that, in that situation where they haven't decided if they're ready to jump and publish what they've got? I, well, for them, I would recommend dipping your toe into it, which is to say do, produce, like, smaller bits of content that are that – are, um, and then you know, put those out and see what and see what the response is to that is. And that was definitely how I got, experienced things as a game designer. Like, um, I started out. I mean, I mean, obviously, I've 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 wanted to be a game designer for a long time. I was like drawing images of levels when I was ten on little on little pieces of paper. But when I really started dipping my toe in, when, as a you know, in my mid-teens. I was modding for a video game called Sonic Rebel Blast 2, and that game allows you to create like individual levels at a time and insert them into the game. So I would post those to message boards and get comments on those. And you know, originally I had no idea what I was doing, so a lot of the comments were like, "This is terrible. There's slime trails everywhere." That's a, that's a technical term in the game, but um, you know, ultimately I used. Um, I used everything that they said to figure out how what worked and what didn't, and you know the same sort of process can work, can work in writing, where um, you know start with smaller stories. I mean, I mean, I would imagine that it's easier for you know a poet like yourself than it would be for a novelist because of the of the uh, specific nature of the projects that they like to make. 
but you know it's always possible to um, to you know do trial runs of the of the sort of uh, samples of what you can do and figure out what people like and what people don't like and go from there and that can give you the confidence to put your bigger work forward well it's funny you should mention that it, it would be easier for me uh, I don't know if you know but I'm I'm actually self published all my work and uh, I mean I, <laughs> I I don't mean to imply that it is easier for that that it is easier no, for you to be I, creative or write the way I am. I'm just, I'm no. simply saying that your genre would lend itself more to the sort of strategy I'm, I'm describing here. No, I, I understand. Uh, but one, one thing, uh, Matt, that uh, I wanted to reinforce that you said was, um, you know, it is a little bit easier for people that write poetry because there are more avenues for which to get your work out there. There's always a lot of people. There's always uh, publishing companies who are putting together anthologies, uh, and oftentimes they're willing to they're willing to accept uh, a couple of pieces depending on what the themes are. Uh, there's the, the benefit of the fact that a lot of people that are, are doing poetry are co-writing with other people in an attempt to uh, get more exposed, uh, which is more difficult. I'm guessing in the I, I don't have a, I don't have any experience in the realm of novels, but I'm assuming that it's a little bit more difficult to get somebody to co-op with you in when writing a novel uh, than it would. Yeah, be. it's hard. That's oh, definitely harder. I mean, come to think of it, I can't think off the top of my head of that many books that were where uh, of that many straight up novels where two where two people collaborated on the story. I mean. The only thing I yeah. think of off the top of my head is the Edge Chronicles, as I mentioned before. And in that case, it was like an author and illustrator team. I mean, there's a, there's been a few. Uh, there's definitely been a few, uh, particularly in the H.P. Uh, Lovecraft uh, works. There's been people that have sort of picked up his work uh, and worked together on collaborative projects. Stephen King has done a few collaborative projects with people, uh, but it's but again, it's it's few and far between. A little bit difficult. Uh, whereas with anthology, with with poetry, uh, it's uh, who just decide to come together and we're going to do an anthology and here's our theme and everybody home and throw it in this. We'll throw it in this anthology. We'll stamp it. We'll throw it out there and somebody will buy it. Maybe who cares? We we publish something. Woohoo! Uh, you know, <laughs> you don't do that with with novelists because again, uh, there's a bit more of an investment on the part of a novelist than there is on the part of a poet. Uh, because exactly. speaking personally, uh, you know, my work is my work, but at the same time, uh, you know, it, it's a lot less work for me to throw together one poem than it is for somebody to throw together, you know, an entire novel. Uh, there's a little mm-hmm. bit more of an investment part of a person who is writing an entire story with in-depth, you know, with a, with a setting and characters and, and, and in-depth description of those characters and interaction between other characters. Uh, and the thing with novelists that they oftentimes possess a different writing style, and this is where uh, things can get hairy for people who attempt to co-author, uh, is if you have two people yeah. with very different writing styles, they're not going to mesh very well. Whereas with poems, I, I could tell you, yeah, I could tell you that even like the same person might have a different writing style, wildly different writing style, with two different types of writing for like. As I touched on earlier, I also uh, write political columns for for a website, and you know my writing there is worlds apart from my writing as a novel.
Yeah, I mean, there's there's totally different writing styles. I mean, I've uh, I've done reviews for films, I've done historical articles, um, and there's a definite, and, and those are completely different from what I do with poetry. Uh, they're they're extremely different. I have to approach them in a completely different way. Uh, and the same can be said. I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and just say that probably the same can be said for novelists who not only may possess different writing styles, but may also have a different approach. Uh, as far as timeline goes, as far as what they think uh, is best for a character, uh, and you can really absolutely. That I mean, story. I mean, I've I've been through, I've been in and out of like all the little processes and ways I think about writing with you, and I could tell you that there are going to be like maybe ten percent of of writers who are listening to me use like uh, use many of the many of those things. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, there's there's going to be you're going to have people uh, who just don't approach it the same way you do. As many as many people as there are in the world, uh, you know, that's so. I mean, I can definitely see where that's a challenge. So, Matt, tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, I want to get back into your process. Uh, when you when you write, uh, do you have people review your what you've got? Or do you review it as a whole? Do you have people reviewing it in pieces? Uh, what do you think the best way to approach, you know, the reviewing process of your book, the editing, uh, and and in getting a final final copy? In general, in general, I have people read it back to front when it's done, but that is not to say I would not like for a lot more piecemeal review. I think that would be more beneficial in some ways. Unfortunately, uh, Jessica is not interested in that. She hates spoilers. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, I've sometimes want. I've sometimes asked her, "Can I run by? Can I run by you like um, some some dialogue or some action that I'm tr- that I work on?" She's like, "Ah, oh, no, 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 no! I don't want to gear it." Yeah, that's that sounds like Jessica. Yeah, and you know, I ha- I do respect her wishes, so I don't I don't press the point, but it is so it does sometimes feel like a missed opportunity. You just come in and say spoiler alert and just tell her anyway. I don't – I do usually – I usually <laughs> warn her, and it's kind of a formality because I know the instant I tell her there's going to be a spoiler, she's going to refuse to listen. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, you know, it, and it sounds like, though, she's invested in your in your stories, though, and that's, that's really a good thing, right? Uh, it's got to be a good feeling. So, yes. I mean, have you talked to other people? Who have read your work? Yes, um, I've I've had. Um, I mean, I've obviously had other members of my family read it. Like my cousin Sam is uh, an even bigger writer than I am, and he often he always has great points. Like a lot of his, like I rewrote a good part of the second book after he read it, and he gave me so many t- so many tips on on improving the story, um, and then. I actually I happen to have a very very large Twitter following, and occasionally some of my followers have read the books too. Now let's talk a little bit about uh, social media as well. What are the benefits uh, of having social media accounts uh, for for young artists? What do you think uh, the real benefits, and what do you think some of the pitfalls are of, of using uh, that platform to really get your work up there? Well, I mean the benefit is. That's a, it's a really super easy and inexpensive way to get 
a lot of your work out, out there more quickly than you might otherwise. Um, the downside is, remember what I said about all criticism being useful? There is an exception to that, and that is social media. Um, I, there are trolls who will, who will do, say something not because they genuinely believe it, but because they just want to make you mad. But the good news is that you can often tell when that's happening. You can filter that stuff out. Well, we always have a troll now and then. I've had a few trolls on my show. I like to call in every. I'm now approaching and then. like, I'm approaching forty five thousand followers, so I definitely run into my share of trolls. And that's that's quite impressive. I I I have to say it's very impressive to followers. Give me some of your followers, Matt. Um, <laughs> yeah, I actually just got 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 the the blue verified badge, which I, which I'm kind of happy about. Yeah. Like, I'm picking up a Pokemon badge for you, Matt. Hmm? Feel so accomplished. Sound like a Pokemon trainer over here. Pick up my blue verification badge. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, it's not a gym badge. It doesn't qualify oh. me to enter to enter the league. Oh well, you know I tried. I tried to get you in there on the technicality. Come <laughs> Tell me a little bit about, uh, you know, your, your other hobbies, the other things that you do. I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of people are probably going to now assume that all Matt does now is play video games and write, and what a glorious life he must live. Uh, Matt, tell us a little bit about the rest of what you do, because I know we touched on a little bit that you, you design video games uh, and, and you write, but, you know, tell us a little bit. Well, I mean, I would definitely say in re- in response to – to the, idea, to the idea I just play video games. That's sort of like saying that a painter just gets to hang around museums all the time. <laughs> I'm sure a lot of painters would like to hang around museums all the time. Yep, just as, just as uh, video game designers would love to just sit around and play video games, but we don't often get to do that. You ever get tired of video games and just sit around designing? Not at all. Not in the least. I- I get tired of certain titles, maybe, but I don't get I don't ever get tired of 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 the of the thrill of playing games. So uh, I I know it's probably going to come up, so I'm just going to go ahead and ask it for the audience. So Matt, what is your favorite video game? I don't know if I have you- one favorite, but I have I don't have a favorite so much as I have pivotal games that. When I dis- that had a huge impact on me at various points in my life. Um, so, I think the game that first convinced me I wanted to be a game designer, or the or at least the game that ha- that started getting me thinking about that, was a really obscure 1990, uh, 1998 title called Animaniacs Game Pack. Wow. That's taken it away so, back. I mean, yes, yeah, so uh, I mean, you're familiar with uh, with Animaniacs, right? Right. Yeah. So I mean, it was basically yeah. just um, a um, a computer game that had like five mini games starring the uh, starring the Warner siblings, and right. um, and the real so there was one game mini game in particular. Um, 
that featured Wacko sneaking into Acme Labs and just and destroying robots with belches. And he basically had to navigate a maze, eat various snacks to power up his belches, and then grab keys and hit switches and stuff. So the, the thing that – what was significant about that game to me was it first got me thinking, like, um, that game showed map screens of, like, the level, and it got me thinking, I wish I could design levels for this. So I started, like – so I would take, take out a piece of paper and start drawing – my ideas for levels for this game. And I ended up just getting, they ended up getting just ridiculously detailed and complicated. And to this day, I write super, super small, just cram tiny letters onto paper because that, that's a habit ingrained in me from when I was doing this and wanted to use it and wanted to have as much space on the paper as possible for my creations. And I mean, you took it, I mean, that, that you took it way back too. I mean, that's a, that's yes. So retro games you're doing there. So right absolutely, now, and and um and there were other games that really influenced me too. And pretty much always they were uh, the after that the games that I really loved were the games that allowed me to create things. Like um I fell hugely in love with the Incredible Machine series, where you basically build contraptions out of these weird random parts to perform wacky things. Um, and you're able to create your own machines and, and your own levels to challenge people. I fell in love with the Roller Coaster Tycoon games. I, I would get so addicted to those. Um, and then, as I say, um, the game that really made me first start feeling like a game developer was uh, Sonic Robo Blast 2, the game that I mentioned earlier, the one that you know taught me how to take criticism. Right. Because that that game really started getting me into into harder core um, uh, mod- modding and, and the design of levels. And it was the first time that I was designing games that, where my work was exposed to a wider online audience that could actually give me advice. And I'm sure that was very helpful for you. I mean, it absolutely getting... was. It really just, it really t- started. I mean, I learned so much in, in college. Like I, I took games and simulation. In, in college. And that was a huge part of, you know, learning how to design levels that appeal to people. But another huge part was just designing stuff, throwing it out there and seeing what people said. That did so much for me. All right. Matt, if you were going to pitch your book, how would you pitch them, Matt? What would you tell us? You get to if you got so to the, write you a mean, teaser, so the new one. Yeah, if you get to write a teaser right now for your book, what would it be? So I would say I would say that um, the story the story begins with Greg stranded in a in a universe that he doesn't even know what what's happening. All he knows is that thing is that things are at their bleakest. The council the council has been uh, has fallen to a coup. And universes all over the place are being are slowly being taken over. But with a band of uh, but with a band of um, of fellows loyal to the old order, he manages to find his way back, and finds himself confronted with uh, with a um, uh, with, with an evil plan perpetrated by the president of the United States that he must that he must stop. 
Wow. Pretty heavy. Some pretty heavy duty stuff there, man. Mm-hmm. So, Matt, tell us. Tell us all. What's next for What's next for Matt when he finishes the Paradocian trilogy? Well, what's the after, next step? After I finish that, after I finish that, I'm going to take a step back. Probably going to reread through the whole series and decide, you know, where to go from there. Do I want to, like I, I as I say, I've been toying with the idea of more stories from that from that. Uh, from that canon at other other points in time, from the perspective of other characters. That might be something I want to deal with, or I might want to just try coming up with a brand new story. You know, I may I may not know what road I'll take until I actually hit that hit that fork. Yeah, taking it in stride, that's that's one of the best ways to do it. Well, man, it has been a pleasure to have you on. Guys, guys, if you haven't taken a look at Matt's first two books, The Paradox Maker and The Universe Tree, they are available on Amazon. Isn't that right, Matt? That's right. And if you don't download it, you've brought great shame and dishonor to your family, and you should just go do it right now. Because <laughs> uh, uh, honestly, I don't know if you're not reading if you're not reading these two books and you're not getting the last book when it comes out. I don't know what you're doing with your life, but you're you're not living life to the fullest. You need to go out there. You need to go get yourself a copy of the Paradox Maker and the Universe Tree. Ten that Matt find it because it's digital. Is it not digital, Matt? Are you digi- or have you digitized solid copies of your books? Um, I did actually create, um, a few physical copies of the Paradox Maker, um, on a, on like a, a special printing press in, um, in Massachusetts once. There are no physical copies of the Universe Tree, at least not yet. So Matt, Matt, if someone were to acquire one of these, one of these books, do they get a signature from Matthew Chapman? Unfortunately, I don't have enough of them to sell. Uh, I absolutely would sign them if I had enough to actually give to people. Wow. That's okay. One day. One day you're going to sign them. One day. One day, I promise. I promise. Matt, that, that is legally binding. Guys, Matt has legally bound himself to sign a copy of one of his books one day. That means that he's going to do it. All right, guys, this has been Matthew Chapman here on the Bareback Facts with me. Go check out his books, The Paradox Maker and The Universe Tree, and look out for his newest book, Matt. Tell him what it is. Uh, The Mirror Experiment. Mirror Experiment, guys. And Matt, Matt, what are we looking at timetable-wise? How long do they have to wait, Matt? Hmm. I've already written, like... um over 100 pages of the third book. There's still a long way to go, but as I say, I never let myself go a day without doing some writing. So this is not, this is, this is not something that's off in the, in the far, far future. This is coming. 
You're not going to George R. R. Martin our, our our audience, are you? Not not going to keep them waiting, you know, 15 years for the next copy of the book, right? No, no, not not 15 years. Definitely not that long. <laughs> for one thing, the books are the books are set in the very, very near future. So, um, like the first book takes place in takes place in 2018. Like I actually wrote that book back in 2012. Um, so that so it was further in the future then. But um, the third book takes place in 2020, so I definitely have a deadline to get it out by. Hey, don't want to don't want to mess that up. All right, guys. Again, that's the Paradox Maker and the Universe Tree by Matthew Chapman. Check him out on Amazon. Thanks for being on the show, Matt. Appreciate having you on, man. Thank you so much for having me. Hey, man, it's been a pleasure. We'll have you on again sometime. Next time we have you on, tell us more about your work. Thank you so much. All right, man. You take it easy. You too. Guys, that was Matthew Chapman, and he gets to go out. Things will go gloriously. Catch me Sundays on Straight Football Talk at 11 a.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern Time. This has been a Totally Driven Entertainment production, and we'll be back very soon.